Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, June 22nd, 2020. Welcome to the official start of summer. I am thrilled to report that since we started this podcast in April, we have dropped 35 podcasts, and last week, we reached a major podcast milestone of over 5,000 listens. I'm so thankful to you for tuning in, and I hope you have enjoyed listening. This week, we have two interesting podcasts focusing on pregnancy and ultrasound. In today's podcast, Fetal Growth Restriction, I'm joined by Dr. Simi Gupta, who is one of the maternal fetal medicine specialists in our practice. We discuss the situation when the fetal size appears small on ultrasound during pregnancy. Namely, how do we differentiate between a baby that is perfectly fine, but just smaller than average, from a baby who is truly growth restricted and therefore at risk for adverse outcomes? This is a very common occurrence in pregnancy, and Simi is one of our local experts on this topic. On Thursday's podcast, Organic Chemistry and Fetal Echocardiography, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Lamb-Racklin, who is also one of the maternal fetal medicine specialists in our practice. We discuss her road to becoming an MFM, and specifically one who specializes in ultrasound and fetal echocardiography, or ultrasound of the fetal heart. I think both of these podcasts will give you great insight into how we use ultrasound to evaluate the fetus and help manage pregnancies. We have big plans for the summer, including several mini-series of podcasts. The first mini-series will be on prenatal genetics, which is set to launch next week. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Today, we'll be talking about fetal growth restriction with Dr. Simi Gupta. Simi, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thank you. Great to have you here. So we're talking about fetal growth restriction. And is this something you see a lot of, or is it something that's pretty uncommon? It's actually something we see all the time. I probably see a patient with fetal growth restriction a couple times a day. So very common. Right. And that's something that also, when I'm speaking with patients about fetal growth restriction or the suspicion of it, that it is very common and everyone thinks that there's like a big problem necessarily, but most of the time the baby's perfectly fine, right? Right, exactly. When we say fetal growth restriction, we're just talking about any baby that's measuring under the 10th percentile. But many people have babies that are under the 10th percentile that are completely normal, healthy, no issues at all. We just don't know how to tell the difference yet. Basically, when we're doing ultrasounds and we're measuring the size of the baby, there's measurements we take and the computer algorithm will calculate a percentile. And meaning 50% would be average, 90% would be big, 10% would be small. But obviously, 10% of people will generally be under the 10th percentile. And so when you see that, how do you approach that if you see a baby that's measuring in the smaller end under the 10th percentile? We look at a couple of different things because, again, most likely people are having whose baby's measuring under the 10th percentile. This is just their normal and there's not anything to worry about. And we call that being constitutionally small. But we do look for other things that may cause it. So the first thing we look for is to make sure the baby's doing okay. So does it have enough fluid around it? Is it moving? Is it doing all the things we hope that it's doing? And if that's the case, that's the first thing that's reassuring to us. And then the second thing is we start looking 
looking to see if there's anything that's causing the baby to be small. So one of the most common things that causes a baby to be small, especially later on in the pregnancy, like in the third trimester, is some type of issue with the placenta. So we look at the blood flow between the baby and the placenta to see how well the placenta is doing. And if that looks normal, that's also a very reassuring sign to us. There are so many reasons why a baby can be measuring small. And the most common reason is nothing, that everything's fine. The baby's just small. Some babies are built to be big. Some babies are built to be small. And that is the most likely reason any baby's going to be measuring small. And we try to tell that to women so that they're not worried about it. But like you said, particularly later in pregnancy, of the reasons that a baby would be small that are not quote unquote normal, the most common is some form of the placenta not working as well as it should. And the other tests that we're doing are helpful to us because they let us know that either the placenta is actually perfectly fine, right? So if you see a baby that's measuring small and all the other tests look normal, it's probably that the placenta is perfectly fine. Or if there is a problem with the placenta, it's pretty minor. And the reason that matters is ultimately there's very little we can do about a baby that's measuring on the small end. It's usually not related to what the mother is eating or doing or anything like that. And so the only real decision we're making is do we need to deliver the baby early, like either induce labor or do a C-section based on the circumstances. And in general, we're not going to do that unless we're concerned. Correct. Exactly. So the last thing we want to do is deliver a baby early that doesn't need to be delivered early. So if the baby's looking okay, even if we think there's a placental issue, but we think in general the placenta is working well enough, we'd like to just keep watching the baby and let it come out when it wants to come out. And so the things that we look at that you mentioned before, we look at the fluid around the baby, the amniotic fluid. Right. And the main reason is that the amniotic fluid is baby pee. And so if there's a lot of fluid around the baby, it means the baby is urinating, is peeing, which means the baby is drinking, right? The baby's not dehydrated because one of the things the placenta has to do is give the baby water to drink, so to speak. So if the baby has is peeing a lot, we know that the placenta is at least giving the baby enough water. Whereas on the flip side, if we see low fluid in a small baby, that would make you more concerned, yes? Exactly. So the fluid level around the baby is a big indicator that the baby's getting enough nutrition from the placenta and that its kind of organs are working well enough to produce this pee, which is always reassuring. Right. And then in terms of other things, we look at how the baby's moving. There are certain ways we can check that the baby's moving, either by ultrasound. There's a test called the biophysical profile or there's also a test called the non-stress test. And both of those are basically indicating that the baby's getting enough oxygen. Because if you turn down the oxygen, so to speak, on a baby, like in an adult, they'll get very sleepy, very tired, and they're not going to move much. But if a baby's jumping around inside, we're assuming that the placenta is giving the baby enough oxygen. Exactly. So it's nice to be able to see the baby moving. And this is also something that patients can do at home is just make sure the baby's moving normally. And that's always a reassuring sign when they're not with us. Right. Because placentas that are really not functioning well to the point that they would be dangerous to the baby, the baby would slow down its movements considerably before something happened. Exactly. The blood flow studies are a little bit more complicated. Most people think when we're checking the blood flow that we're checking the blood flow that's going from the placenta to the baby. They're like, oh, is my baby getting enough blood flow? Is my baby getting enough blood flow? But in fact, we're not measuring that. We're measuring the blood flow in the umbilical arteries, right? Right, exactly, which is the vessels that carry 
the blood from the baby back to the placenta and therefore back to mom. But it is kind of a very good way of seeing how well the placenta is functioning or working because that blood flow is what becomes a little bit abnormal if the placenta is not working as well. Whereas the blood flow from the placenta to the baby always stays strong. The way I try to explain it to women is that a normal, healthy placenta sort of looks like a sponge. And so blood or any fluid is going to go right through it nice and easy. Whereas the placenta, as it gets worse and worse in function, it's going to get harder, almost like a brick. And so the blood is not going to flow nicely into the placenta. So the patterns we're looking for is a nice smooth pattern of blood flow from the baby towards and through the placenta. And that's reassuring that the placenta is healthy. Whereas if it's, we see like the blood flow slowing down or even stopping or sometimes going backwards, those are much more concerning and number one, it tells us there actually is a problem with the placenta. And number two, it can tell us how severe it is. And so frequently, when we see babies that are measuring small, we're going to have them come in at some frequency, whether every week or twice a week or whatever it is, to do all these tests to make sure the baby looks healthy. Seeing how much fluid is around the baby and how much the baby's moving, along with looking at the blood flow, can help us guide how long we can watch the baby, how often we need to see the patient, and make kind of management decisions like that. Right. And so typically, if all the tests are normal and there's a baby that's measuring under the 10th percentile, and so we're assuming that either everything is perfectly fine or there is a small problem with the placenta, but nothing significant. When do you deliver these women? Do yeah. you just wait indefinitely or is there a certain endpoint that you have in this situation? So our goal is to get them as close to their due date as possible. So if everything else is looking good, we'll usually recommend delivery somewhere between 38 weeks and their due date. And just as a reminder, your due date is 40 weeks and full term is 37 weeks. So our goal is to get these babies full term and then give them time to go into labor on their own if that'll happen. There isn't really a right or a wrong in this situation. The, the current recommendations to try to get towards the due date. And probably for most of these babies, it's fine to go past the due date, but it's almost a situation of diminishing returns that if you go past the due date, yes, it might be a good thing and she might go into labor on her own in a few days and it might work out well. But if there is a problem with the placenta and we're waiting on it, waiting on it, waiting on it, at some point it's going to get much worse. Correct. And it's sort of a balance between not delivering too early, like you said before, but not waiting too long. And that's sort of our break point, somewhere from 38 to 40 weeks. It's it's unusual that, especially in a situation where we've been following women for this, and we've obviously increased their anxiety a little bit, that they're pushing very hard to go past their due date. Some do, but most are ready to be exactly. delivered by that point. And who is it that we're even looking for the, the weight of the baby? Is that something that's done routinely in prenatal care? Or is it only in certain women that they get an ultrasound to check the weight of the baby? It depends on the situation. Most women, we do what's called a fundal height, which means we kind of measure the size of their uterus as an indicator of how big the baby is. And we just do that in the office with old school measuring tape. And for those women, if everything looks like it's measuring appropriately, then we don't need to do an ultrasound to check the baby size. On the other hand, there are some situations where we feel like there's such a high risk that the baby might be small that we should be doing routine ultrasounds to check the baby size. This might be because a woman has high blood pressure, maybe because they had a prior baby that was small, maybe because they have some kind of autoimmune condition like lupus. So 
There are several conditions where we might be specifically doing ultrasounds every month to check the baby's size. And in most cases, though, it's really if a baby's just kind of seems to be measuring small with a measuring tape, then we go to ultrasound. It's complicated because the the ultrasound that we do doesn't actually weigh the baby. Right. right. We don't put the baby on a scale and say your baby weighs a certain amount. We're sort of like the guy at the carnival who looks at you and guesses your weight. We do some measurements. We take a couple measurements of the head, one of the waistline one of the thigh bone, the femur bone, there's an algorithm that'll tell you what the weight is. And there's some accuracy to it, but it's notoriously not that precise, particularly as babies get bigger. So it's pretty good at identifying which babies are very small, but it's not so great at identifying which babies are very big. So for this particular topic, when we're concerned about a baby being too small, it does tend to be more useful to use ultrasound rather than measuring a woman's belly, and either with hands or with the tape measure, as Simi was talking about. On the flip side, when we're worried about a baby might be too big, that's a different conversation, and that's very complicated because it's it's the ultrasounds inaccurate, our estimates inaccurate. Right. But with small babies, it does seem to be the case. And so either we're someone that has risk factors for it, and there's, they're at a setup for it, so to speak, or there's a concern that maybe the baby's measuring too small. And most of the time, we think the baby's measuring small by our exam. The baby's actually not measuring small, so the exactly. ultrasound tends to be reassuring. In what circumstances, if a baby's measuring small, are you more concerned that there's a problem going on? Meaning we've been talking about how it's usually fine, everything's typically fine, and we just wait and everything's okay. But what situations come up that really do concern you that there's something more severe happening. If a woman has a risk factor where we think there was a good reason where the baby might be small, then I'm more worried. Or if we some of this monitoring that we've spoken about, low fluid or abnormal blood flow between the baby and the placenta. Another big thing is like kind of timing, meaning a baby that's small at 36, 37 weeks, it's more likely to be normal. Whereas a baby that's small at say 20 weeks, that's a little bit more unusual. So those babies I may be more worried about. Babies that are maybe measuring a few days or a week smaller than I would expect, I'm not so worried. Whereas babies that are measuring several weeks smaller than I would expect, I'm more worried about them. And then of course, if there's anything I can see abnormal on uh, ultrasound as far as birth defects, that would make me more worried. Or if they've had any genetic screening tests that have come back abnormal, that would make me more worried. So kind of a, a combination of not just the baby being small, but something else going on makes me more worried. Right. And one of those things would indicate that potentially there's another cause for the baby being small that, you know, it could be nothing like we were talking about before, or potentially a problem with the placenta. But if it's happening so early, the concern is that either there's a severe problem with the placenta right, um, or that it's not actually a placenta problem, but in fact, there's a condition that the baby has that's causing it to be small. Like you said, some sort of genetic condition or some anatomic abnormality or there's infections that can do it. That is obviously much more concerning than something else that might be just you know a mild issue with the placenta. When you were talking about the the difference in the size, it's it's interesting because babies, when they're born, obviously there's a wide range of what's a normal quote unquote weight. I mean, you see babies that are five and a half or six pounds that are perfectly fine, perfectly healthy, and babies that are nine and a half or 10 pounds that are perfectly fine, perfectly healthy, and everything in between. And so the the variation in weights at birth is normal. But early in pregnancy, there's much less variation. The, the earlier you get in pregnancy or the more towards the beginning of pregnancy you get, all those babies measure the same size. So the baby that ultimately is going to be six pounds and ultimately it's going to be nine pounds, 
when mom is 12 weeks, they're usually the same size. When she's 16 weeks, they're usually the same size. And 20 weeks, they're, they're usually the same size. And they only start to diverge later. So what Simi was saying is earlier in pregnancy, if you see a wide difference, that has a higher chance of being concerning. So a baby that's measuring a week smaller than I would expect at 16 weeks, it's much more worrisome to me than maybe a baby that's measuring a week smaller than I would expect at 39 weeks, which could very much be normal. It's most likely normal. Right. And this is a topic you've published on, which is second trimester early onset growth restriction. Exactly. So we looked at all of our own patients who were measuring less than the 10th percentile early in the pregnancy. And interestingly, if everything else looked normal as far as the anatomy and the genetic screening, most of these babies actually turned out to be to do very, very well and be normal, fine, healthy. But babies where we did see them being much smaller or already saw some abnormal blood flow between the baby and the placenta, or of course saw any other abnormalities, those were the ones that we ended up needing to worry about. Right. And what you were saying about you see, you know, two or three a day, babies that are measuring small at the end of pregnancy, that's very common. Right. But it's much less common to have that concern in the second trimester. And so when we see these women, indeed, it is very scary because it can be a bad situation. It really could represent a genetic abnormality. So we urge them to have either genetic screening or have an amniocentesis for testing of the baby to make sure there's no genetic condition. We look very closely at the baby head to toe, measure all the bones. We look at the heart head to toe. We look at the brain to make sure it looks normal. And frequently we do find abnormalities. If there is concern for the growth in the second trimester, there frequently is a problem. But what happens is a lot of women will come to us often as second opinions where the baby's measuring small, but everything else is normal. The right. baby looks normal. All the testing is normal. Everything looks fine. And what Dr. Gupta found in her study was that, in fact, like you said, most of those babies do well. Right. And so what happens is we see a lot of people who their initial consultation, whether it was with us or with someone else, really scared them to death because it's, it's a horrible situation. But then as they start doing all the tests and everything comes back normal, 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 we spend the rest of the pregnancy trying to reassure them that everything's going okay. And it, it involves a lot of close follow-up. But usually if the babies are going to grow, again, like if there's a one-week or a two-week difference, if that remains stable over the course of pregnancy, like you said, at 38 weeks, a one or two week difference means almost nothing. You wouldn't even notice. I failed to mention when we're talking about some of these early small babies is one of the most important things is making sure we have the due date correct, because a common reason a baby may seem to be small is just that we're off with the due date. So having an early ultrasound to kind of confirm due dates or following ba a baby over one or two scans to kind of check the due date is one of the most important things. Because if we're off with the due date, that could be a very easy explanation for why a baby's measuring bigger or smaller than we would expect. Right. So if, if we think someone is 20 weeks and the baby's measuring 18 weeks, that could be a big problem or could be we're just wrong. She's not 20 weeks. She's actually 18 weeks, in which case everything is fine. And that is hard to know if the first time you have an ultrasound is at 20 weeks. Right. And it's one of the reasons early ultrasound has become more common in practice. It used to be woman with Mr. Period diagnosed pregnancy with a urine test or a blood test, and then her first ultrasound would be at 20 weeks. This is a while ago, but nowadays there's so many more opportunities for early ultrasound. And since babies are supposed to measure around the same size early on, you'll know pretty quickly, were we off by the due date or do we have it correct? And so that woman who comes at 20 weeks and the baby's measuring 18 weeks, 
if she had an ultrasound at seven or eight weeks that confirmed the due date, we're going to end up being much more concerned because we know that the baby's actually two weeks small. But if she never had an ultrasound, the most likely thing is the baby's actually just 18 weeks. And then you would know that with time as the baby grows. Like you said, we don't have this issue so much anymore because many women, we are lucky enough to have early ultrasounds. The old school way of estimating due date was just based off of your cycle. And that assumes you have regular cycles. And many, many women don't have regular cycles. And therefore, these early ultrasounds are helpful for us. Right. So getting back to fetal growth restriction, the the common one, the one in the third trimester that we see, typical scenario is a you know, woman comes for an ultrasound either because Someone suspected the baby was small or because she has some risk factor. And we do an ultrasound and the baby's measuring, let's say, somewhere under the 10th percentile, maybe the 8th percentile, and the baby looks healthy. And we're going to follow her every week or twice a week or whatever it is. What are the situations in which you would recommend delivery earlier than 38 weeks or 39 weeks or 40 weeks like you were talking about? So there's a couple of situations. So one is, of course, if the baby's not doing everything we're supposed to be doing. So the movement is is abnormal or the amount of fluid around the baby is low. Or, of course, if the blood flow between the baby and the placenta suggests that the placenta is maybe not working as well as it should be, that might be a reason we should deliver a little bit earlier than we would expect. So those are kind of the big guiding factors in who we should deliver early and who we shouldn't. We also look for other situations in certain pregnancies, for example, twin pregnancies, we may be a little bit more nervous about them. We may consider delivering the baby early or if the baby's really not growing much at all, or we see um, a mom who also has some blood pressure issues or something else going on. So having multiple things going on at the same time is another reason we may deliver early. And what is the the reason for delivering early? Because a lot of people say, well, if the baby's not growing well, wouldn't you want to wait longer to let the baby grow more? So it's a little bit counterintuitive. What is the purpose for delivering early? What are we trying to avoid or to fix? So we're always kind of balancing the benefits and risks of delivering early. And the biggest risk with a small baby, especially one where there's something else going on, is this risk of stillbirth. And so our goal of delivering early is really to prevent a stillbirth from happening and then also kind of preventing some type of emergency situation from arising. So if everything's going well and the risk for stillbirth is low, we try to get further along in the pregnancy. On the other hand, if there's any concerns that things aren't going well, or we think the risk for stillbirth is higher, then we will move towards an earlier delivery. Right. And it's it's a complicated situation because every time we see a woman like this, the risk of stillbirth is not very high. But as these abnormal findings start adding up, the risk of stillbirth starts going up. And that's a very high stakes game. Right. And so you don't want to get a situation you know, where you waited too long because that's obviously devastating. When I explain this to women, I tell them it's like a situation that they're walking towards a cliff. And some of them are walking quickly. Some of them are walking slowly. For some people, the cliff is very far away. For some people, it's very close. And our goal is we want them to get pretty close to that cliff because it lets the baby grow as long as possible. But absolutely, we have to pull them off before they go over the cliff. And we don't always know all these things. None of these tests are perfect. And we frequently have what's called a false positive, which means the test is abnormal, but in fact, the baby would have been okay if we waited a week. But it's very hard to know that in real time. And so as you get closer to the due date, the downside of delivering becomes lower because the baby's bigger and older and is going to do well. 
And it's one of the reasons we have to check many times and involves a lot of conversations and a lot of thought. And it's not just a cookbook type of thing where you say, okay, if A, then B, you have to really consider this. What is the risk of stillbirth? How long am I willing to wait? What are the circumstances? What are the risk factors? What's the situation? And go into that. But it's important stuff. It does take a a little bit of balancing all of the different things going on to kind of decide the optimal time for a delivery where we are making sure both mom and baby are safe without taking too many risks in the situation. Right. And nowadays, particularly in major hospitals with good neonatal care, if the baby's after 34 weeks, I mean, it's surprising if the baby doesn't do well. Obviously, you'd like to wait as long as you can. But in terms of big picture, it's unusual that a baby that's born at 36, 37 or 38 weeks or whatever it is, is going to have complications related to that. And that's why the the risk of having something horrible happen while you're waiting typically outweighs any concern you have. The real difficult situation is when you're in this and it's 28 weeks and you're talking about a baby that's two, two pounds or two and a half pounds and you're really worried. And so in those situations, you might try to push it a little bit longer because getting it wrong and delivering early is more devastating because you have a very premature baby and those situations are much more complicated to manage and to counsel and to go through. And those are also the situations where we need to get a number of different people involved. So we like to get the pediatricians involved. And of course, the patients, their kind of feelings about, you know, different times of delivery and the risks, it kind of has to become a much bigger conversation between several of us to kind of decide or come up with a plan where we think we're doing what's best for for the baby in those cases. Right. And like you said, it's always that balance. You're trying to, at, at every point in time when we're concerned about the baby's weight, we're always thinking, is it better for the baby to stay inside? Is it better for the baby to come out? Right. And that decision towards the end of pregnancy is usually pretty easy. Right. And early in pregnancy, if nothing's going on, then clearly it's better to stay inside. But when it starts getting difficult to know, is it better to stay inside or better come out? That is a complicated thing. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of testing to get the best sense of what to do. And that testing might have to be three times a week. Who knows? It could be very frequent or daily at certain times. Sometimes people are admitted to the hospital and we get testing once or twice a day to try to figure that out because very early in pregnancy, every day inside is a huge difference for the baby. Earlier in pregnancy, like you said, every day makes a big difference. And every day that we think it's safe to leave the baby in, we are potentially making a big difference in outcomes afterwards. I think if I were to summarize it for our listeners, fetal growth restriction is a very wide range or a big net of situations. The majority of the time you're at the end of pregnancy, the baby's measuring a little bit small, It usually means nothing and the baby's perfectly fine. Occasionally, it means the placenta's function is slightly diminished, but nothing remarkable. We watch closely if the baby looks healthy. You get delivered sometime by your due date. And then sometimes at the end of pregnancy, it's a little more concerning that there's a problem with the placenta and we'll deliver a little bit earlier. And that's the overwhelming majority of it. And then there are a few situations where it's much more significant, like early in pregnancy, where we're worried that in fact, it's not the placenta, it's something related to the baby in terms of genetic condition or something like that. Or we are worried about the placenta, but it's very early. But again, those are the exceptions. And so most people, when they're working through fetal growth restriction, it's not needed to be so stressful. And in a few circumstances, 
it might be. And so it's important to sort of think about which one of those situations you might be in, because if you Google it, it can it's going to you know scare you to death, obviously, because you'll always find the worst situations, whereas most of them are pretty straightforward. Well, Simi Gupta, thank you so much for coming on Healthful Woman, talking about fetal growth restriction with our listeners. If you have any further questions about this, you can absolutely email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.